Good morning. Our opening words this morning are from my dear friend and colleague, Hannah Roberts Vilnave. People sometimes ask, is pride a protest or a party? And the answer is, of course, yes. And why not? Why not rejoice as we resist, dance as we demand change, celebrate as we create community that delights in all of who we are? So bring all of that with you this morning. Bring your policy demands, bring your glitter, bring your Supreme Court broken heart, bring your rainbow socks, bring the emptiness you feel for our siblings gone. Bring your Gloria Estefan remix, bring your tender hope for change. tattered and battered by a world that seems insistent on choosing fear and hate. Gather up all these things and bring them here to a place where we don't have to shoulder these burdens or celebrate these joys alone. I invite you now to join in singing our opening song as the chorus leads us. Welcome again to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Amanda Hers, and I am privileged to serve as the clergy leader here. I am glad that you are with us this morning, whether you are in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag this morning so that we can particularly welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We do enjoy talking about what it is that we have found in this community, but we are especially eager to 
hear what it is that you are looking for. We hope that you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and social hall. And we hope that you'll consider sharing your email with us on a gold sheet that you can pick up at the welcome table. Right as you came in the front doors, you can grab one of those gold sheets and drop it in the collection basket when it passes later in our platform service. I do want to remind you to sign up. Um, but while you've got it out, turning it on uh, silent, you are welcome to check in on social media. Let your friends know that you are here. I am particularly excited to um, three guests. Two of them may be well known to you. They're members of this community, and one is our special guest this morning. Um, and they'll tell a little bit of their own story, but I want to just introduce them now. Um, you will have the great good fortune to hear from Ellen Kahn. Ellen is a member of WES since 1997, you thought, right? Um, she also serves as Director of Children, Youth, and Families Programming at HRC, Human Rights Campaign. Trang Duong is a member of WES for five years, six, four years. Um, she serves on the board, and she's had leadership positions in Rainbow Families as well, um, as well as in every other organization. <laughs> I'm not going to list them, Trang, because we don't have that much time. Um, and she'll be sharing a little bit about her own story this morning. And then we are so pleased to have Adolfi Johnson with us. Um, Adolfi is Director of Programs at SMILE. SMILE is our Share the Plate this month. And um, we are really lucky to have her with us sharing just a little bit more than we sometimes get from our Share the Plate folks. Um, she also serves as associate pastor at the Community Church of Washington, D.C., a UCC congregation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And now I'd like to invite forward the candidates for the Board of Trustees who will be um, voted on and um, some of whom will be elected to serve on our board later today at our membership meeting. So I want to invite Lauren Strange, Doug Miller, Josh Blinder, I just saw, there he is, okay. And, um, and I will say Lee Peterson is stuck judging swim trials at a children's swimming meet. So just imagine another tall person here. Um, Doug, you can just go like this and you'll be both yourself and Lee. Um, our candidates are gonna share our statement of purpose, but I wanna just appreciate their willingness to serve this community in such a vital position and thank all of them um, for being willing to take on that service. Or we can just have Who wants to? The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. 
Well, that was an excellent uh, collaborative reading as well. I want to congratulate you for that. And um, to make it easier, I'll just invite Lauren, who serves currently as our president of the Board of Trustees, to light our candle as we share our candle lighting words together. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Thank you all so much. Each week we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today I am particularly mindful of all who are celebrating pride this month around this country and the world and those who are not yet free and safe to be able to celebrate. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I want to invite you now into a time of meditation. Doug, would you be willing to make sure that folks know this would be a good time for anyone to enter? Because then we'll have some quiet during our meditation time. So if we do have folks who are holding back, let's have them come in now. <clears throat> it's just our, do you want to? Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So I invite you to take a breath and settle into your seat. Close your eyes if you would like or soften your gaze. This month, as we explore beauty, and this Sunday, as we celebrate and honor pride, we hold all that is. Those lost to the struggle, those still struggling, those held in beauty, which is us all. For our meditation this morning, I'd like to read a poem by James Agee, followed by a breath of silence, and then by the chorus's sung version of that poem. And finally, by more shared silence together. Sure, on this shining night of star-made shadows round, kindness must watch for me this side the ground. The late year lies down the north. All is healed. All is health. High summer holds the earth. 
hearts all whole. Sure, on this shining night, I weep for wonder, wandering far alone of shadows on the stars. Thank you so much for that beautiful moment. 
Well, this Sunday, as we celebrate and honor Pride, the protest and the party that Pride is, a little more on that later, I have been thinking about this congregation, this community, and the history of this community as an ally, as being in solidarity, and as being a community of LGBTQ folks, a community that is open to being queered, so to speak. The title of this platform is Queer is a Verb, and I want to do a little side historical note to say that um, the term queer is one that depending on especially often your generational location, may come up with a whole variety of different experiences and emotional reactions for you. And that there are folks that will say that word is a slur that I heard as a slur and, and it's very difficult for me to hear it in any other way. And I wanna, I wanna honor that experience and to share that in the late 1980s, um, what I, I love how Wikipedia put this, the deliberately provocative and politically radical alternative to the more assimilationist branches of the LGBT community, um, really did work to reclaim the word queer and to use it as a kind of solidarity word across the community. And that's the, um, that's the way that I learned um, that word and, and the spirit in which I use it. So I just want to hold that you may hear that and we all are going to kind of come to that word potentially with different emotional reactions. I just want to invite you to hold that for right now, um, for today. Um, because I really do want to talk about the idea of queer as a verb. I asked a bunch of colleagues, what does that mean to you to say um, that you're going to try to queer something, right, to use it as a verb? And my Brilliant colleague Marisol Caballero said, um, it's turning heteronormativity, right? The idea that what is normal is heterosexuality. It's and centering LGBTQ voices and perspectives, in part to point out how little we notice how heteronormative every, I might insert bleeping here, but she didn't, she was much, um, much more appropriate. Um, everything around us is often including the way we speak. I thought that was a helpful phrase. I had another colleague who pointed out that the idea of queering something isn't just for folks who identify as, um, as LGBTQ, who identify as queer. She was officiating a wedding for a straight presenting couple. So it was a couple of different sexes, different genders, cis male and cis female um, getting married and there's a whole separate platform about what it means to be straight presenting and invisibility um, that we're not having today, but um, we could. Um, and um, and in, in their wedding vows, this couple um, agreed to love each other and support each other for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, and to queer the system. So part of what their marriage meant, their straight marriage meant was a use of queer as a verb, right? To live into a kind of solidarity and an upending of the system. So I did a little bit of research for this platform about Wes's history as a community, as an ally and as um, being really in solidarity and as being a place of community for queer folks as well. And um, there's 
a piece of that that starts all the way back in the 1950s. And this is a part of our history that I've actually only heard like stories about. I haven't found anything written yet. Um, that way back in the 50s, um, the first gay federal employees group, right? Um, so this is, think about the 1950s. This is a time at which um, being out would have been meant that you did not have a job in the federal government. In fact, you would have lost way more than your job in all likelihood. Um, so the first group for gay federal employees met here at West. The story goes that they um, signed their contract with an ex um, because it was a, such a high level, level of anonymity needed for them to be able to meet and feel safe. Think about the McCarthy era and the time and those times. In 1972, the American Ethical Union, our parent denomination, had its first resolution, which was, quote, opposing discrimination against homosexuals. You can start to see how the language has changed over time, right? And they reaffirmed that resolution in 1979. I dug around a little, and we think that the first same-sex commitment ceremonies, so before marriage equality, when they were just commitment ceremonies, were offered at Wes um, in, I think, probably the mid-90s was the thought. Um, the American Ethical Union had a resolution for marriage equality in 1996. Now, Ellen um, Kahn, who's going to speak a little bit later, said that when she joined in 97, her experience and understanding was that there was only one out gay member of the community at that time. And, and she wasn't sure. She said that's what she thought. Da, da, da. So, um, so I contacted him, and, um, and, and he affirmed that. that so Don Spears um, told me actually about in 1993, petitioning the Board of Trustees of West to create a same-sex attracted group, the very first group of that kind in this community in 1993. And he says that um, back at his place in Costa Rica, he has the paperwork from submitting that proposal to the board. Um, so, um, so that was the very first sort of moving from allyship, yes, you can meet here, this will be a safe space, to um, solidarity, right, some of those resolutions, right, um, still resolutions from a, a presumed um, straight group in solidarity. The first experience really in 93 of saying, actually, this is a community of. This isn't just a community in support or a community in allyship. There are folks within our community uh, who are LGBTQ. We can be a community of, right? Um, the, in 2013, if we fast forward a little bit, Wes officially became a welcoming congregation, which is a designation of the Unitarian Universalist Association. And it required some classes and teaching as well as a vote. Um, the vote was passed unanimously, and I think for a lot of folks, um, it was a feeling of, oh, like this is who we are, like, of like a rubber stamp. More later on the way that's not really the case, right? And sort of the edge issues in this community. Um, but every, um, every year the UUA actually asks me to make my best guess of a count of our demographics. You know, how many people do I think in the community are LGBTQ? And um, because we don't collect that data, we don't ask anybody, I have to base it either on I've had a conversation with them, you know, I know who they're married to, they, they 
they've told me, right, we've had, or some other information that I've received from them. And so surely my count is low, um, return to that platform about straight presenting and by invisibility um, that we're not having today. Um, surely my count is low, but it's generally about 10 to 15% folks who identify as um, not straight, right, as queer, as LGBTQ. Um, which is about double or triple what national polls find in America overall, which is also probably low. Okay, that was just a little flyover of some of the history at West, which I found interesting. And I'd like to invite Trang now to come and be our first speaker. And um, which I felt like I told her, but maybe I didn't. Trang, you're the first speaker. Is that okay? Great. Um, thanks. Um, to share a little bit about her story. Okay, I can get myself together here. Good morning. Did you know that Pride is in June, but coming out day is on October 11th? Good. I always thought it was funny to have just one day during which you celebrate or do the deed of declaring yourself to be LGBTQ. The reality is that we often are coming out on a daily basis. For example, I ask myself, do I share with another parent who's also volunteering at the school's field day that my wife works for the federal government? When I bring my wife's car to the mechanics for a checkup, do I clarify that I don't actually drive that car? So when I decided to come out to my mom, who had a not-so-secret wish for me to marry a nice Vietnamese boy, <laughs> it was a long time coming. I had had a boyfriend in college, but several years had passed with a few girlfriends or partners in between, and my mom none the wiser. It helped that she lived many states away in Oklahoma while I was residing in Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> I remember we were sitting at her dining table with the Oklahoma heat on my back, and I told her that I was dating a woman. She was, she was confused and asked in Vietnamese, were there no good men in Alaska? <laughs> now, here's the thing in Alaska, about Alaska. At that point in time, and maybe even now, if you were looking to date a man in Alaska, you were in luck. There were more of them just in sheer numbers. But people have to be resilient and even downright quirky to live in Alaska, regardless if there were men or not, myself included. Therefore, the saying was, the odds were good, but the goods were odd, right? <laughs> but I continued, no, mom, I, I've been dating women since I moved, since I lived in California years before, but now I'm telling you. I let it sink in because I was expecting my mom to go on a tirade on about how living in America had made me gay. That's a common blame game when Asian immigrants come out to parents. But my mom surprised me that day and just told me that she was okay with it and she wanted me to be happy. Fast forward several years later to my partner and now wife Kim, whom my mom absolutely adores, my mom doesn't speak English fluently, so she talks to Kim in Vietnamese. 
In fact, she often chats in her home language with her daughter-in-law, my wife, and her two son-in-laws. Yet, only one actually speaks Vietnamese, <laughs> and that's not Kim. <laughs> so, my wife just smiles, shrugs her shoulders, and waits for my translation. And she knows that my mom loves her. It's a beautiful thing to be loved and accepted as you are to know that you don't have to come out anymore within that space and time. I'm lucky Kim and I have, have that with our families who accept our relationship of over 16 years and our daughter too. And I feel that way at West too, that we are part of a community that allows us to flourish as our fullest, queerest selves. Thanks for listening. some kind of wavelength because the next sentence I wrote for myself is imagine the beauty of a world where everyone gets to flourish <laughs> it's literally the same um, you know when I think about what beauty means that that is really what comes to mind for me as we explore that theme this month a world where people get to be themselves in their most beautiful fullest ways where boxes are broken down and, um, and one of the things that has been really interesting for me in the last few years, particularly as a parent myself and, um, and working with children um, uh, and youth, it has been noticing the ways in which I thought I was like way past many of the boxes and then notice how they are still colonizing my mind, right? The boxes that I thought I had left behind because I'm progressive and understand all of that and, and then am challenged to go yet one further. Um, and that has been nowhere more true for me than in thinking about gender identity and gender expression, particularly among children and youth. Um, and, um, and experiencing really a, gr a group of folks, a generation of folks, often following, right, ancestors and forebearers, but now open and out in a way that is, I think, relatively new in our society. Um, not that the experience of gender identity or expression is new, but the language, the way we talk about it is new, and the decolonization of boxes that we are invited into at this time is something that continually pushes me forward. And so I'm hoping that Ellen is going to share a little bit about her work, um, really just kind of um, helping us to see how non-useful those boxes are for everyone. Good morning. Thank you. My name is Ellen. She, her, hers. Maybe. <laughs> it's not perfect. Uh, I'm a lesbian. I'm a gender non-conforming lesbian. I was a tomboy from day one. Um, growing up, I never felt like I was angry at my body, <clears throat> um, but I felt very limited by what it meant to be a girl. I felt some resentment. Um, so sometimes I felt like I wanted to be a boy because it would mean I could play with G.I. Joes or I could, um, you know, 
climb the trees and not have people ask me why I'm climbing the trees. Or I could, um, you know, have a crush on a girl and it would feel a little bit more right. Um, I didn't have an experience of dysphoria that many uh, trans people have, but I did have a sense that um, I was trapped by what was expected of girls. And 40 years ago when I was 16 and I came out as a lesbian because I was attracted to women and that was the language available to me, um, I, I added a little bit of texture. Back then, you know, you could be um, butch, soft butch, butchy femme, femme butch. <laughs> uh, one of my favorites, um, butch on the streets, femme in the sheets. Um, <laughs> Um, that was about as nuanced as, as we got back then. And to Amanda's great point, we really have had a, a limitation in language. Uh, for me, I never had, um, you know, identifying as, as a lesbian always worked for me in terms of my sexual orientation. But I think my understanding of gender and our just universal understanding of gender and trying to make sense of it um, is much more limited by terminology and language. We have not had the right categories to capture the vast experience we've had. Um, I know I talk a lot about, um, people have talked about this, you know, so many more people are trans or non-binary or gender expansive, and it's really not the case. I mean, it's no more true than more people are LGBTQ. It's really just that there's been liberation, right? That liberation that started 50 years ago uh, and more people coming out as LGB um, is really similar to what we're seeing as probably a tip of an iceberg where people who are of some kind of trans or gender expansive experience see possibility models. They see opportunities to try to describe um, with real texture and nuance and uh, uniqueness who they are. And just to bring that to life a little bit, uh, HRC conducted a national survey a couple years ago of LGBTQ teens, and we really didn't use many boxes because we've, following the lead of young people, boxes don't work. Um, and so what we found is of the 12,000 teens who responded, 5,600 were gender expansive, which is kind of this broad category. It could be binary trans people, um, gender queer, gender uh, nonconforming. Um, and of those 5,600, about two-thirds were not binary trans people. And what I mean by that, um, in terms of a, like a binary trans experience, you would think of, say, Jazz Jennings um, or Gavin Grimm, um, somebody who identifies as uh, a binary female but was assigned male at birth. That would be Jazz Jennings' experience and so on. But there's this you know, whole uh, vast uh, universe of, of folks who are not binary. Either they're not binary as cis people, not binary as trans people. And so um, what we're learning, and in fact, I'll just share a few ways that a lot of uh, young people, about 1,000 identified um, write-in answers. Like we gave a lot of options for folks, but we also let people write in. And we heard things like gender smoothie, gender queer, bi-gender, demigender, flux, gender fluid, agender, gender zebra, just to name a few. Um, and again, as I said, I think that's the tip of the iceberg. Um, I, do, I know that we have folks in our congregation who are trans, non-binary, um, are identifying in some way kind of beyond the binary. 
and I do feel like, you know, there are things we're doing to try to create more opportunity, like using pronouns and having conversations, cracking conversations, so that folks can bring their full selves here. I do want to, I think, important to mention is that even in the queer community, the trans community, there is still sometimes some discomfort with folks who are non-binary. Um, there's some pushback against um, honoring they, them pronouns. Um, there's a, a great story that I will tell in a very um, a brief way that one of the parents I've, I've met, I, I work with a lot of parents of trans kids and they're like incredibly fierce and many of them have struggled and you know it's not an easy journey but I work with parents who have continued to move along to really love and affirm their children and make sure their children are safe. And there's one mom who uh, is from this area who um, their, their child, came, their, they knew their child was really struggling, not happy, assigned female at birth. And this child came to, came to the parents and said, I'm not a girl. And these parents were like fairly woke. You know, they, they, were, they, were, they wanted to do the right thing. And when they heard this kid say, I'm not a girl, they, they decided that must mean this kid's a boy. And they went sort of on this road towards supporting this kid in their gender transition. And they started down that road and about a year later, without really seeing a lot of improvement in how their kid was feeling, um, that child came to them again and said, you know, thanks for being so supportive. I really didn't finish my sentence, you know. <laughs> I'm not a boy, I'm not a girl, I'm sort of in between. And now JJ is a re really a thriving uh, non-binary child. And th it's interesting because what happened with the these parents who had found this great support network of parents of other binary trans kids, um, some of those parents were like, I don't get it, I'm not using they, them pronouns, this is some other thing, don't minimize the identity of my kids. And so that's you know some work that we, we all have to do. Um, you know, everybody's journey, uh, everybody's gender reality and is, is, is real. They will, people will tell us who they are. So I guess what I wanna leave, um, leave you with is that uh, we talk a lot about our elders. We talked about um, the folks who started the Stonewall riots and, you know, people for me, like Billie Jean King was someone who, you know, like was a hero, shiro of mine because I needed someone like that. And, and so many other people who've, who've come before and after. And what I've realized is I have, I'm learning so much from our younger generation. And I'd like, you know, little respect as an elder, but actually I'm boring as hell. And, uh, and I've, I've learned so much more about who I am and what gender is for me. So I wanna appreciate our younger people. Thank you. Ellen, thank you so much. I think that speaks so much to that experience of querying a community, querying our understanding of gender is actually something that leads to collective liberation, not just liberation for people who don't fit within the binary, but liberation for all of us, right? To understand gender more expansively, to understand gender roles very differently, um, to get rid of gender roles, because you know roles are yummy to eat, but like not great for gender. Um, you know, it, it gives all of us the opportunity to live more beautifully and more expansively. And that's been such a joy for me personally, as I said, in, in my journey in the last couple of years. And, um, and I think for all of us as well. And thank you so much for your work with, um, with our kids especially. Um, so, um, so 
our opening words talked about pride being a protest and a party. Ellen mentioned the beginning of um, what many people see as kind of the modern um, movement for LGBTQ civil rights, um, which was 50 years ago this year, the Stonewall riots. And I think, you know, now Target has 4,000 t-shirts you can buy, Bud Light has rainbow beer cans, um, Amtrak has, you can like ride a gay train, I don't really even know. <laughs> Like, everything is rainbowed out, right? Um, caveat in a minute there. Um, and, and we often think about pride as glitter and boas and rainbows and soap bubbles and, um, and beauty. And, um, and indeed, the first pride was a riot. Um, it was a riot led by drag queens, in particular led by Marsha P. Johnson, um, a black drag queen, and it was a riot against police brutality. And um, that core beginning is so important to consider as we think about beauty, the beauty of pride, the celebration, and the joy of We need to think, too, about the way that beauty leads toward deeper justice, the connection between beauty and justice in our world. So even though there are rainbow Bud Light cans now that you can get, um, we are so far from the truly whole and beautiful world that we seek for ourselves and for our children and for each other, the liberated world. And, um, and so I know that I have just a great deal of gratitude and um, appreciation for the people and organizations that are working to move us closer to that world. Each one of us has the capacity to work ourselves for collective liberation, um, and also there are folks that are doing it in very specific ways. And so I'm really honored to have um, Pastor Johnson with us this morning um, from SMILE to share a little bit about um, uh, their work and um, anything else she wants to tell us. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you all for having me here. Um, I must say that from the time that I walked in the door, you all have been so amazing, and you don't get that experience everywhere you go. So I, from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you, because what that means to me is that the things that you all say, the values that you hold dear to you, you're actually living those things out, and it's not just lip service. So thank you to each and every one of you for that. I am Adolphe Johnson. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the director of SMILE. And all that simply means is that I get the wonderful opportunity to work with young people five days a week, sometimes six and sometimes seven, and doing, you know, wonderful and amazing things and helping young people to be the best version of themselves possible. So a little bit of history about SMILE. SMILE has been in existence since 1984. This is our 35th year anniversary this year. So we're super excited about that. Yes, that's something to be very excited about. And folks always say, well, how did SMILE get started? You know, where did your humble beginnings come from? And we always reference back to in 1984 individuals were being institutionalized at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. 
for expressing themselves in the way that felt comfortable for them. Men were dressing in women's clothing, women were dressing in men's clothing, and folks believed that there was some sort of mental disorder or disconnect that was happening. So instead of them being able to support individuals, they say, we're gonna put you in a mental institution and let folks try to fix you, right? So then there were some community activists that got together and was like, no, that's not what's wrong with individuals. Folks just need a space where they can express themselves, be themselves, and feel supported in the process. So that was in 1984. We started as a support group. We're now in 19, no, we're in 2019. It's been a long weekend, y'all. It's been pride and protest. Yes, all things it's. Uh, so it's been very much a long weekend. Um, and so we're now in 2019. We have a housing program for individuals that are experiencing housing insecurities. And I want to stop here for that moment and say that, you know, there's a lot of language that changes often in communities. And you often will hear folks talk about individuals that are homeless. And when there is a homeless identity, there always is a stigma that's associated with it. And folks no longer become humans, they become known by whatever this stigma or this identity is. So we try to use language to say folks are experiencing housing insecurity because it's just that, their housing is not stable. They're not homeless, they're still human they still have names and so there are some statistics that are in the community that share about 40 percent of homeless individuals even especially here in DC between the ages of 18 and 24 identify somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum and when we think about why individuals are experiencing homelessness oftentimes it's because they felt comfortable in coming out and their families put them out or they felt comfortable in coming out and the oppression that they were experiencing in their homes was so great that they felt that they would be better suited on the streets than being in the home with their families. And it's always so challenging, but it reminds us just how important the work that we at SMILE have to do. So we opened up a housing program in January of 2017. We, at that initial program, we were able to house 14 young people. We are now opening up a second housing program that should be open hopefully by the end of this month, maybe the beginning of July. We're waiting on Pepco to come and who knew that it took forever for Pepco to come install electricity, but it is what it is. So as soon as Pepco comes to install the electricity, we'll be able to then open up that next housing program. And that will add 16 beds and 16 units to individuals that we're able to provide housing for. And these are young people that can stay with us for 18 to 24 months. They don't pay any rent. They don't pay any utilities. They don't have to pay for transportation. They don't have to pay for food. The only thing that we ask is that they are able to take advantage of the fact that they're in a situation and they're in a place where they don't have to worry about where all those other needs are being met and they can really focus on themselves so they can help and be the best version of themselves. And in 24 months, hopefully they're able to graduate because we like to use language that says graduate from their program because that's something that's super exciting to say that I've accomplished this thing and to move on to independence in whatever that looks like for them. So we we have a housing program. 
We have a drop-in center program that meets Tuesday through Friday. Um, young people are able to come and do whatever young people like to do to make their heart sing. If it's voguing and death dropping on the floor, then just don't break the furniture. And if you do, we'll have to call somebody to come and fix it because it has happened before. Um, you know, they do sip and paint. We do yoga. We take the young people on field trips. But it really is youth-driven activities that really things that they desire to do. You will be surprised how many young people have not been outside of D. How many young people, just based upon their identity, based upon their gender expression, are scared to go outside of D.C.? And so being able to create that comfortability for them is super impactful in how they see themselves and how they represent themselves in the world. So we don't stop there. Um, we also do in-school support. So we provide training for teachers, administrators. We do trainings at any place that has individuals that are gathered that um, have some sense of touch points with young people or that just want to expand their knowledge. On this past year in January, we actually extended our program. And so Historically, our programming has been for young people ages 13 to 21. When we added the housing program, it extended our, our target age to 24. This past January, we extended our age to the age of six. And the reason why that happened, yeah. And the reason why that happened is because we had a lot of folks that were calling to say, hey, I have a six-year-old that's trans, or I have a six-year-old that's experiencing, you know, this expanding gender identity, exploring, and they need more than a therapist to go see, right? They need a place where they can meet other young people that have some similar or shared experiences. So we said, okay, the need is there. Why is Smile not doing it? Let's do it. And just like that, the board was like, okay, no stress. We'll figure all the other things out later of how we're going to fund it. But let's immediately just go ahead and implement this program. So we're excited that we have a play group that meets on um, the last Saturday of every month that really allows young people and their families to come to meet and to exist and explore. Um, we always have things going on that smile. And I always encourage individuals, if you ever are can feel the need to want to volunteer with any of the services that we have. If there's a gift, and I'm talking about like a gift, like you're really good at resume writing, our young people need assistance with folks helping them to write resumes. If you're really good with, you know, sewing or makeup artistry, or, you know, even if you just want to come and extend your presence to another young person to let them know that they are affirmed to let them know that they are loved and to let them know that they are needed. We always welcome those things. And with that, I want to say thank you for the opportunity to speak with you all today. Thank you for the sacrifices that you all are making in the community at large to ensure that all of our LGBTQ young people are safe and supported. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. And I want to make sure that you know that the other gift that you can give SMILE is money, right? And that you'll have an opportunity to do that during our collection. So I want to be really clear that I believe you would also take that gift. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, I want now to just invite us into music and song and joy, to invite us into a world made beautiful and just, a world where queer is a verb. 
sure, our kids can come in.
and you are welcome. I did not belt it out. Um, <laughs>